So we have started our new sermon series, haven't we? Um, Rejoice, looking at various passages from the Apostle Paul's letter uh, to the church at Philippi. This is a slightly different letter. You've probably noticed that those of you who've read different letters from the Apostle Paul in the way that it's probably not so much theologically crafted as the other letters. It is theologically good, but you know, you know what I mean, and, or, or logically debated um, letter like compared to the Roman, uh, the letter to the Romans. Here, this letter seems to be a bit more fluid, flexible. He seems to be show much more affection, much more vulnerability, much more uh, emotion, if you like, and fascinatingly, he seems to show a joy that goes against anything he seems to be experiencing. As we've already said, Paul is in prisons, probably in shackles. He's probably, um, you know, he's probably in there day and night. Yet amazingly, amazingly, he's not telling us in this letter about how those chains are chafing or bleeding his wrists. He's not telling us about how he's not getting enough sleep amid the groans and boredom of iron bars and walls. He's not even telling us about the terrible food or the hard labor or the fear of execution. No, not at all. In fact, quite unbelievably, Paul sees the glory and advance of Christ in all we do, in all he's doing, as we heard last week. He uses the term kara or kairo, Greek terms, for joy and rejoice 15 times in just four verses. That's phenomenal. Rejoicing in whatever setting Jesus puts him in. Jubilee, I think we have a lot to learn from this letter, don't we? I certainly do. Our first value from our God-given we values is we rejoice. You know what? We're not there yet like Paul. In many ways, this is probably the first value, is probably the most aspirational of all of our we values. The journey ahead, I believe, is long. But hear this, hear this. Jesus wants his bride, you and me, first and foremost, to be known to the world for her joy, for her rejoicing, for, as our name says, our jubilee spirit. And that's why we're in this book. That's why we're delving deeper. Question, what will it take for you and me to rejoice like Paul? In fact, that's the title of this morning's talk, actually, Rejoice in Life. As we unpack this, I think the answer Paul is going to give us from these very few verses might be tricky, actually. You might not like it. Let's read on. Philippians 1, 21 to 30. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. He's sure of that. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions. It's a dilemma. Having the desire to, de- to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake, the church at Philippi. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only 
conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you and that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents which is a sign of their destruction but of salvation for you and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this letter. Thank you, Lord, for these verses. And I pray, Lord Jesus, open our hearts, challenge us this morning, open us to a reality of the joy that you bring. I pray, Lord God, that as we come, as we kind of delve into this passage, that you will break into our hearts with joy. I pray, Lord God, that you will open our hearts with joy. I pray, Lord God, that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher and the one who brings joy to each and every person here, no matter what is happening to them, no matter what has happened to them, and no matter what will happen to them for the advance of the gospel. In Jesus' name. Amen. So four things really I want to share with you from this passage. Firstly, joy in the faith. See verse 25, it says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy in the faith. Audrey Hepburn, the famous actress, once said, The most important thing is to enjoy your life, to be happy. Uh, it's all that matters. That's what she said. The young girl, Anne Frank, who was a Jewish victim of the Holocaust, she wrote in her diary, we all live with the objective of being happy. Our lives are all different, yet the same. When you look at the magazine racks or the bookstores or hear people being interviewed, whether you're watching Grand Designs or Strictly or The X Factor, the pursuit of happiness and fun, I would say, is the main goal of life. And people will do anything for it. So what brings happiness? What brings happiness? I think generally uh, the world today has come to think that scientific or political or social progress, these are the tools, the things that will make us happy. You hear, on, you hear it on the telly all the time, don't you? Over the next four weeks, that's what Jeremy, Boris, Joe, even, even howling Lord Hope from the monster-raving loony party are going to tell you time and time again. Now, it's not that scientific and political and social progress is wrong. It isn't. Often it's good. We should aim for these things. We should debate for these things. Do, please do prayerfully vote and exercise your Jesus-given authority in these elections. But my question to you is this. If we really look over, say, the last 200 years, in spite of our ancestors having fewer economic choices, less political freedom, fewer job opportunities, no health benefits, shorter life expectancies, can we really, really say with our hand on our hearts that we, in our generation, are more happier than them in their generation. Philosophers and sociologists will tell you they're not so sure. The Bible, however, is full of happiness. 
The term blessed in the Bible is all over. It means happiness, joy. It means a deep, unrelenting happiness and joy, actually. Psalm 1, one of the most famous passages on this in the Bible, opens with, blessed, blessed is the one who, and he lists a whole lot of things. Jesus expands this theme in probably the most famous speech known to mankind, the Sermon on, a Mount, and on the Mount in Matthew 5, where he says eight times, blessed are this kind of person, blessed are those types of people, blessed is the one like this, what have become known as the Beatitudes. You know what that tells me? You know what that tells me? Wait for it. Wait for it. It's staggering. It's mind-blowing. It's this. Jubilee, happiness is possible. Wow. You look impressed. It should make you go, woohoo! That line. That's great news. Thanks, Raj. But it doesn't, does it? Why not? I'll tell you why not. Because basically, there are four types of people when it comes to happiness. And we all fall into one of these four categories. Firstly, there are those who haven't lived long enough yet. The younger guys among you. You're probably thinking, of course happiness is possible. That's not staggering news. Have I got out of bed just to hear that? What a daft thing to say. For you, you see, happiness isn't just possible, it's normal, it's natural to be happy, unless you've really messed up. You think, if I'm good enough, if I'm smart enough, if I'm hardworking enough or whatever, happiness is natural. There are people out there who aren't happy, but that's because they've screwed up. Is that you this morning? Happiness isn't just possible, it's normal, it's natural. That's where we start. That's where I started. But as the time goes on, we migrate slowly. We become the second kind of person, possibly. After a while, as we begin to see and experience more of life, the highs, the lows, we realize that unhappy people aren't just the ones who've got it wrong, the ones who've messed up. Why? Because I'm unhappy. I've got a roof over my head and some food and some friends and an education maybe uh, and some money maybe. My situation compared to a lot of other people around the world is much better. Why am I so unhappy? I've become a Christian maybe. Joined a church. Go to every God gathering there is. I should be deeply, consistently happy now. Why aren't I? Conclusion, deep happiness, this is what you might have come, the second person's conclusion, deep happiness must be unachievable. Impossible. As Nobel Prize winning author Ernest Hemingway, uh, he put it like this, happiness in intelligent people is the rarest thing I know. That's two types of people. The, the extremes of happiness, if you like, they are the extremes. On the one hand, happiness is normal and natural. On the other hand, happiness is unachievable and impossible. Most of us, however, probably fall into the third category. 
somewhere in the middle. We just bob around from one extreme to the other, too busy, too distracted, life is too fast, until something bad happens, some tragedy hits us, and suddenly we're surprised, it shocks us. These experiences make us rethink what happiness is all about. Most of us probably fall into that third category. But there's a fourth person. I think we see this in the Apostle Paul, or glimpses of it anyway. A person who understands what the Bible says about unrelenting, persistent joy and happiness. A person who understands and believes that happiness is neither natural nor unachievable, but, but is most definitely possible. He's not perfect, he's just a guy. But he's seen something. We get that in this letter. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with this for all your progress. And joy in the faith. But if that's so true, if consistent, unrelenting uh, happiness is possible, why do so few people have it? I'm talking about ongoing, long-standing joy. Which takes me to my second point. Second point, to live is Christ. That's what it says in this passage, doesn't it? The answer the Bible gives us to this fundamental question about why we don't see unrelenting, persistent happiness is that we are always looking for it in the wrong places. Psalm 1 again tells us that happiness is like a special kind of tree. Blessed is the one who is like a tree planted, uh, is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. As the guys helped me out this morning, Joel, um, Theo and Joy, it's like these trees. Yeah? That's a tree, believe it or not. And those things are birds, not RAF bombers. That's Joy's, I can say that. And that's Joel's. The tree is an evergreen tree. Its leaf does not wither or die. Despite being exposed to all sorts of weather conditions, drought and winters and strong winds and heavy downpours, it keeps sprouting leaves. How come? What's so special about this tree? Answer. It's been planted on the riverbank and its roots go deep down to a constant, never-ending flow of water. Get the picture? This is the fourth person jubilee. You see, most of us are rooted into the culture and fallenness that we live in. Most of us look for happiness in what's happening around us, the external things, through our families and careers and relationships and wedding bells and spending money and holidays and hobbies and ministry. Don't get me wrong, once again, these are good things. They aren't bad things, they're good, they're great. But the Bible tells us, this passage tells us that these things, these experiences cannot primarily, consistently provide for us a fundamental, deep, unrelenting joy. They can't. They don't. They always fail us. Listen, deep delight can only come from a never-ceasing, ever-flowing river of joy. It can only come from God in Christ. That's the deal. That's the reality. Many of you know that. 
C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnia books, put it amazingly. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the beach. We are far too easily pleased. Is that you this morning? Are you settling for less? That is not what God wants for you. Do you believe God is making us more and more like this fourth person? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus is becoming more and more our way, our truth, our life, our center, our longing, our yearning. Let your roots go down deep into his never-ending grace and joy and power and glory. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you're missing out. You too could have this growing stream of joy in you. There's a place at the table, as we heard earlier, for you. Thirdly, we see verse 27. It tells us, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word only in Greek is massive. We don't get the force of it. Alex Moiter, a Bible teacher, writes, the force of the word only is tremendous, as if Paul had said, this one thing and this only, nothing else must distract or excuse us from this great objective. It must be, all embra- it must be our all-embracing occupation. In many ways, this is the gateway to the rest of this phenomenal letter. What is it? To conduct yourselves, Jubilee, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. How we live our lives, obedience to this God, making the right choices in accordance with Jesus' gospel are key to happiness. It's actually an issue of lordship. Lordship. Later on in Philippians 2, 9 to 11, Andy's going to be unpacking that um, at some point. Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lordship. When I think about all of my non-Christian friends, we have lots in common. They're great guys. We think similarly in many ways. Um, um, but the one area that we differ massively is the issue of lordship. They would say, I am Lord. We would say, Jesus Christ is Lord. They would say, I am my own. They w- we would say, I am not my own. I am His Lordship obedience to him, maturity jubilee is an ever-increasing recognition and living out of this truth in our lives. I was doing Jesh's homework last week. We take turns, you see. Not me and Jesh, me and Charlotte. It was on Martin Luther and the Reformation effects uh, in England, and that got me reading something called the Heidelberg Catechism from 1563. 
It was a list of 129 questions followed by uh, answers. That's what a catechism is, questions and answers. And it was about the Christian faith. And the very first question was this very question of, um, this very issue of lordship. It says this, question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me, you, of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready now on to live for him forever. Listen, you belong to him. And because you belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures you of eternal life and makes you wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Lordship. If you're not a Christian here this morning, if you want to be happy, you have to change who you belong to. A love relationship with a living God changes uh, changes you for the long journey, not a list of rules and regulations that we sometimes see in religion. Grace is what you need. As uh, Paul later puts it in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who do you belong to, you or him? Who do you trust the most? Who is your Lord and Savior? It's a question for us all. And finally, fourth point, verse 29. For to you... It has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Uh, Last week, if you remember, Nick um, brought um, the interpretation of Harold's tongue, glorifying and praising um, Jesus in the midst of suffering. I don't know if you noticed that. That was a profound moment for me, actually. Liz, too, shared how mirrors were made through repetitive Uh, scratching and rubbing until the dull surface became reflective and perfect for the job. God has been really speaking to me about not quickly jumping to the conclusion that all difficulties and setbacks are enemy attack. Over the last 18 months or so, I've been grappling, some of you may or may not know this, with low mood and depression, actually. I've shared that with some of you. Some of you have been really helpful. It's a confusing, bizarre state of mind if you've never been through it. I have a great wife, great kids, a great church, great jobs. Why should I feel low? Over this last year, I've been racked with feelings of guilt and unworthiness. I'm a lot better now, by the way. Um, Who are you to lead the church? These are the questions. Some of you who have been diagnosed with depression might be able to sympathize or empathize with what I'm talking about. And actually, over this season, I've been quick to jump to the conclusion that this is spiritual attack, that it's of the enemy. We sometimes live in a very prosperity kind of church culture that cannot, will not conceive of hardship and setback and suffering 
coming from God. But do you know what? Maybe God has been speaking to me and shaping me through this season. Asking me to question the way I live. What are my priorities? What brings me a sense of value? What does genuine leadership in the church look like? A shepherd look like? Am I, going, am I, am I being a good husband? Am I being a good dad? Should, how should my time be spent? What should my diary look like? Am I cultivating a heart enthralled about Jesus? What is it to have the mind of Christ? Faye um, bought me a book some time ago, actually, um, called The Emotionally Healthy Leader by Pete Scazzaro, where it unpacks this. Really helpful. I'd really encourage you to read it, whoever you are. Listen, through this season, I think I've come to this conclusion. Deep, fundamental, biblical happiness, joy, grows in the midst of suffering and setback. When you read the Bible again and again, you see men and women who are experiencing deep suffering and torment and pain and torture, far, far worse than anything I've had to go through. Yet at the same time, they are declaring a deep, deep happiness in God. Loads of people, Ruth, King David, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Paul, Peter, the list goes on. This is fundamental to our Christian faith. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, in all this, and he's talking about suffering and persecution, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Greatly rejoice. In John 17, Jesus prays before the Father, just before he's leaving this world. He prays for his followers. He says, I pray they may have the full measure of joy within them. He's about to go to the cross. One chapter earlier, he's speaking to the disciples and he says, you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Who's he talking about? He's speaking to men and women who are going to be persecuted. They're going to be robbed of everything they own. They're going to be tortured. They're going to be put to death. You will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. As Christians, this is, this is mind-blowing. This is staggering when you really think about it. As Christians, when we experience trouble and strife, deep, consistent joy and confidence, I believe comes in greater degrees by pressing into Jesus, relying on Him, drawing down heavenly strength rather than human strength. And listen, that happens at its most in the midst of suffering and hardship and setback. I said at the start you wouldn't like it, didn't I? That's real happiness. Not just a super feeling, a light-heartedness. Oh, oh, oh. No, it's much bigger. That's why our friends in Ghana and Syria and Turkey worship with such joy and vigor. Hand on my heart, I can say I have loved being with Jesus during this season. I've experienced his majesty, his beauty, his eternal promises like never before. I mean that. And he continues to heal and restore me. I thank him for that. A happiness that is stimulated by difficulty. What a gospel. What a gospel. You know what? I'm going to end here. You know what? Jesus got this. He really did. 
Jesus got it fundamentally. Jesus experienced this joy in the midst of suffering. Hebrews 12:1 tells us, For the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured, endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose your faith. Right, let's end with a Teesside Catechism 2019, not 1593. Question, why did Jesus go to the cross? Answer, for joy. Question, what did Jesus yearn for so much that he endured such pain and torture and forsakenness? What joy did Jesus take Helen to his soul for, go to Helen back for? Answer, You and me. Jesus loves you. On the cross, make no mistake, Jesus could have quite miraculously, easily set himself free, but he didn't for you and for me. Bomb after bomb came crashing down on Jesus as he willingly was flogged and cursed and ripped apart. Yet he took it all. He stayed there for you and for me. Listen, you were the joy that put him there. Staggering, mind-blowing, unbelievable. I know. Sam Storms put it this way about this verse. In Hebrews, Jesus didn't enjoy the cross. He endured it. He didn't delight in shame. He despised it. What Jesus did was indescribably painful and distressing. Make no, uh, you know, that is, that is fact. But what energized his soul not to give up was the prospect of the joy that awaited him on the other side of Calvary. And that joy was the joy that he would experience in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. You and me. You and me. Let's stand. Yeah, Lord, I thank you for an amazing gospel. I thank you that your message, that your joy, that your unrelenting happiness, your consistent consistent jubilation is unique. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will release joy like that in this room this morning. I pray for people who are going through difficulties. I pray for people who are going through uncertainty. I pray for people who are going through rocking and turmoil. I pray for people who are Lonely. I pray for people who have depression and anxiety. I pray, Holy Spirit, release your healing and joy this morning. I pray, touch each and every person here, no matter what we are going through, that your joy will be released, that we will have something of the mind of Christ in us. Lord, I pray you bring your resurrection power this morning across this church. And I also pray that people here will be a light to those also in difficulty and struggling and in turmoil. I pray, Lord God, that their joy 
gushes forth from them to others that they meet. I pray for Alpha, Lord God. I pray, Lord God, I thank you so much for what you did uh, yesterday, but there's more. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that the joy of Jesus comes into the lives of more people over these next few weeks. And this morning, Lord, we remember, we remember those people in war-torn countries, in suffering countries. We pray for the turmoil across this globe and the men and women who have served to bring a peace, to bring a restoration in these lands. We remember them this morning, Lord, and we also pray for your Holy Spirit in these lands and in these men and women and across this globe. Release your joy in Jesus' name. Amen.